Today's scripture reading comes from Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. This morning we continue on in our sermon series going through the book of Ephesians. I don't say this often, but if you happen to miss last week's sermon, I, I do commend it to you because really what we're covering today and over the next few weeks flows out of that. Certainly you can understand what we're talking about today without it, but if you did miss it, it just it, it gives a very important uh, foundation for what we're talking about. Uh, in short, in last week's sermon text, Paul exhorted us not to live our lives like unbelievers. He exhorts us, don't think like them, don't have the mindset of the world, and, and thus don't live like them. He wanted us to be clear, we're new creations in Christ, and thus we should be different than we were back when we were dead spiritually, using the language of Ephesians 2. Uh, part of this being different happened at conversion, where we were changed from the inside out, what the Bible will refer to as regeneration. Sometimes we'll talk in terms of being born again, right? So, so there's that fundamental change that happens at a moment in time, but there's also the ongoing change that happens throughout the life of the believer, and Paul talked about this last week using language of putting off and putting on. There he's using the picture of clothing, right? And he said for the rest of our lives, there's going to be this ongoing work for the Christian of putting off the old self, that is the old man, the, the sin nature, 
Put those off like you put off dirty clothes. Put on like you'd put on new clean clothes. Put on the new man. Put on Christ. Put on Christ's likeness. Our passage this morning that's part of a larger section that we'll continue right on into next week. Notice this is a part one. We're going to see Paul moves from this general statement, put off the old, put on the new, to specific examples of some of the ways we're to do that. And specifically, he's getting at ways that we put off and put on in the church. That's why I've titled this sermon, might be a confusing title, The New Man in the New Humanity. You could say how new creations in Christ conduct themselves in the new creation. Or, more simply, how Christians should think and act in the church. So turn with me, if you're not already there, to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to be covering verses 25 through 30. Ephesians chapter 4, I'm going to begin by reading verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood... Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. We start with another therefore. This one clearly is pointing back to the section just prior as he's moving, as I already said, from the general put off, put on to specific examples. And yet, as we talked about last week, every single one of the therefores after chapter 4, verse 1, ultimately take us back to chapter 4, verse 1, which pointed to the whole of chapters 1 through 3. And I'm going to keep reminding us of this because this is important. Chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians laid out the theology of the gospel, what what God has done for us in Christ. Chapter 4, verse 1 comes along and says, in light of that, this is how you live. And again, we have to keep reminding ourselves of this over and over again because it'd be easy for someone to hear one of these sermons and think, oh, oh, if I want to be right with God, I, I, I guess I need to live a certain way. And, and that would be a disastrous flipping of biblical truth. And to be sure, Christians do live changed lives. But we live changed lives not to earn our place with God, but precisely because God has already provided that place, right? Thus Paul says in chapter 4, verse 1, my paraphrase, dear Christian, because of God's amazing, stunning grace in saving you from the judgment you deserve and forming you into his new creation in Christ, you must now therefore live in light of who you now are. And this morning we see five areas where new creations should no longer think or live like unbelievers. But instead, we must think and live in light of Christ. Again, going back to verse 1, these five areas are critical to maintaining unity in the church. You'll see that as we go. These are all corporate. These all revolve around the church. You could not practice any of these if you were stranded on a desert island by yourself. So, number one, number one, New creations work for truth. New creations work for truth. We do this by putting off lying. We, we, we put off untruth. And just like we put on clean clothes each morning, we are to put on each day the active pursuit of living truthfully in all of our dealings. And, and, and by the way, notice 
Most of these are really straightforward. I mean, this first one is basic to any genuine relationship, isn't it? I, I told my children from the time they were very, very little, kids, if we don't have trust, we don't really have much, right? If we ever get to the point where you say, Dad, I need you to believe me, and I can't, boy, that's a dangerous place. Likewise in the church. Think about it. If we're trying to build a genuine relationship in the church, and the foundation on which we build is lies or even half-truths, so that you create a picture of yourself that's not real. Well, I trust you can see how that's a relationship killer, not a relationship builder. Right? And so doing, you're actively driving a wedge between you and those you lie to. As they, as they grow to think that you're someone who's really little more than a figment of your imagination. In sort of a most extreme case, it could look like a situation we experienced in a previous church where you can't make this stuff up. We, we had a lady and her family uh, come to town. We were let known by various resources that uh, they were coming, that they needed a, a, a lot of help. And, and, and as we learned their story, uh, we realized they did need a lot of help, and our church really rallied. Uh, they were moving from another state. They had hit hard times, but they were hoping their, their 11-year-old son got into MIT, which if you know schools, it's like the hardest university in the nation to get into. Their 11-year-old son got into MIT, and they were hoping that was a, a fresh start. Well, long story short, after a year and a half, a couple years, I don't remember, things just weren't adding up. And, and, and as it turns out, they built all of our relationship with them on lies. MIT, we found out, didn't even allow 11-year-old students to go there. Now, the whole premise for why they were there as a family, why they had come to Boston, came crumbling down. It was very hard on a local church. That was a real feeling of betrayal. And again, that's an extremely crazy case. But consider half-truths about yourself. Or, or how about deceitful comments about someone else in the church that simply may not be true or only partially true? Right? It's so easy to see how these things can be destroyers of unity in a church. And by the way, keep in mind that this is all in the context of our exhortation last week not to think and act like unbelievers, and that context is so important because the world around us, the air we breathe, well, I think we've pretty well jettisoned truth. Absolute truth is so downplayed in our culture. Little wonder, most people we live life around have very little conscience issues in the realm of lying. It seems like every other day a celebrity, and by the way, how about just the, that idea of a celebrity, right? Someone who we prop up to sort of worship, maybe because they're attractive or they do something well, but a lot of times it's a whole facade. A lot of times they don't even live by the name that they got at birth. Save that for another time. But it seems like every other day that one of these people, we find out they're lying to us about something or cheating or some sort of cover-up. I mean, we know politicians lie. Coaches lie, bosses lie, co-workers lie. At some point, you've got to think, who can I trust? I mean, everyone seems to be in the business of image shaping these days. I mean, isn't that what Facebook's all about? Marriage is completely falling apart, but the posts keep coming. Beautiful pictures to go with them. 
so thankful to be married to the most awesome human being on the planet. Listen, all you got to do is shave the truth a bit to create an image of you that you want people to see. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's actually encouraged in our society today. I think you could actually go down to the local university and find a good class on doing precisely that. And so, church, that's the air we breathe. In society at large, the lines are blurred between truth and lies. And recognizing this, coupled with the fact that this exhortation is here because the Holy Spirit knew we needed it, this should remind us we've probably not arrived here as much as we think we might have. And so we probably need to step back, maybe a little more than we first saw, don't lie. Maybe we need to ask ourselves, how are we doing here? And again, go back to last week's text. Are we renewing our minds in the realm of truth? Is Scripture or culture our guide in the realm of what's true and what's a lie? Let me ask you personally. If you can shave the truth just a little bit to get a better tax return, do you do it? If you can get your kid into the movie for three bucks cheaper by looking someone in the eye and telling them, yeah, he's this age when actually he's not, do you, is that what you do? Have you grown comfortable with half-truths? Have you found a way to justify having something against somebody else. And when they come to you and say, hey, man, are we okay? You're like, yeah, bro. We're good. You're the best. You walk away and you're like, I can't stand that guy. Or maybe you've convinced yourself it's okay to talk about someone else in a way where you maybe lead another brother or sister to believe something about that other person that may not be quite right. And you know that. But that's okay, because that's what you want them to believe about that person, because perhaps it props you up, maybe makes you look a little bit better. Kids, students, let me talk to you. Personal question, just me and you, and hopefully the Holy Spirit. Are, are, are you willing to lie to your parents to save your own neck, even over something small? It's like, hey, that, there was a candy bar here earlier, and now it's gone. Did you take this? No. Really? Where are the only two in the house? Are you sure you didn't take Positive? How about lying to your classmates, to your friends, to make yourself look better? Is, is, is that something that you're willing to do? I mean, let's be honest. This is certainly what's modeled for us in the world we live in. But here, Holy Scripture says not so with you in the church. The inspired Word of God that was once for all delivered to the saints says, Church, Christians, put that off like old, dirty, stinky clothes and put on truthfulness. Put on telling the truth even when it hurts. Put on honesty in all our dealings. See, given our cultural context, I think this is an area we're probably more prone to stumble than we might have originally thought looking at this text. And thus the Holy Spirit is doing His work of renewing our minds through Holy Scripture 
And as he does that is we see little pockets of untruth in our lives. We need to confess that and pursue repentance. And by God's grace, we need to ask him to help us to to put that off like old clothes and to put on the fresh, new, clean clothes of Christ-honoring honesty. And don't miss why in this text. We are to do so, he says, because we are members of one another. The language is like that of Romans 12, verses 4 through 5, where he says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So, in the new creation, in the church, think about it, we are connected to one another like fingers are connected to the hand. And so, think about this. If, if we lie about ourselves or about others, it does damage to the whole body, right? Not just to you, the whole body. And we don't want that. We, we, we don't. As, as new creations in Christ, created in Christ Jesus for good works, we want what's good for Christ, right? We want what's good for the church, and so we want to put off any sort of untruth. We want to put off untruth in all its forms and put on Christ-honoring honesty. Number two, we see in this text that new creations also put off sinful anger. Look at verses 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. I need us to be clear. This is not a command to be angry. He's not saying, be angry, get angry. No, it's more of a, when you do get angry, because that's a normal emotion. When you do get angry, you need to fight to make sure you don't fall over into sin, which, by the way, happens very, very quickly. Oh, to, to, to be sure, there is a biblical category that we refer to as righteous anger. We see that in Jesus in the temple, right? Jesus, Son of God, second person of the Trinity, comes walking into the house where worship of God is supposed to take place, and he sees that they've, they've made it into a marketplace, and, and he gets angry, so angry he, he's flipping over the money changers. He's driving people out of there, and yet it's clear he, he never sins. But can we be honest for a minute? Real honest? You ain't Jesus. You're not. And I'm not Jesus. And while we do have some real instances of righteous anger, we fall very quickly right off that slippery ledge into sinful anger. Or maybe we hear of a child being murdered or a gross injustice in an ungodly court system. And so there's anger similar to that which which Jesus experienced, right? We say, that's not right. God is being mocked here. But I say we're not like Jesus because even in cases like that of righteous anger, think how quickly we move from that into sin. Think about it. If you start thinking, perhaps even voicing, what you'd like to do to that murderer, right? What you'd like to do to that unlikely… If you had a chance to have a chat with that ungodly judge, what you'd like to tell that guy, you're going to give him a piece of your mind. You get there, you're probably not in a good place. Beyond this, we know that there are so many areas where our anger never even starts in the realm of righteous anger, right? Whether because of our pride we get offended, or we just get mad because we didn't get our way, or perhaps somebody else gets in the way of something that you wanted, and you get angry. And 
this sinful anger is very colorful, isn't it? It shows up in all sorts of ways, from outbursts of anger, boom, you know, loud, strong outbursts, to seething, silent, jaw-clenching anger. It can show up in crying. I mean, that's often why kids cry. For sure, they cry sometimes because they're hurt physically, but often they're furious about their situation, and they're small so they can't do anything about it, and so they cry. And adults, we can do the same. And listen close. Sinful anger is a gateway sin, as it often leads into other closely related sins, like evil intentions, or perhaps a plan to harm someone. Perhaps it leads right into the sinful physical altercation, or maybe something more subtle, like gossip, or slander, or the like. Which is why this text is exhorting us, put this off, and to do so in a manner recognizing this is of top tier priority. This is of utmost importance. That's the point of don't let the sun go down on your anger. See, Paul understands it doesn't take long for even righteous anger to become sinful anger, and thus he exhorts us, deal with it quickly. And let me just say, you got to recognize here, Paul's using proverbial language to drive home a point that this is so immensely important that it should not be put off, but it should be at the top of your priority list. That's his point when he says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. We can be overly literal here and, and, and cause troubles that don't need to be there, right? You can get angry at 7 p.m. and think, oh man, I, I got 30 minutes to deal with this before the sun goes down. I'm, I'm in trouble. Or even, you know, sometimes we're like, can't go to bed until you've dealt with this and completely put it away. The reality is, knowing how much a lack of sleep can hinder engaging in a helpful way, sometimes the godliest thing two people can do that are at odds with one another is go to bed, right? Perhaps you pray. Commit to one another. We're going to come back first chance we get to resolve this, whether that's to get up the first thing in the morning or whether it's to resolve it as soon as we get home from work or whether the first chance we really have is once we get home from work and get the kids put to bed, we're going to do that. All of that is in fitting with what Paul's saying here. Here's the point. This is a priority. We're not to kick this can down the road. Contrary to popular opinion, time does not heal anger. Let me say that again. Time does not heal anger. It can anesthetize anger just a bit. But when the anesthesia of time wears off because the next infraction happens and all that stuff comes bubbling up to the top, it becomes clear, oh yeah, time didn't heal that. I never dealt with it. I just stuffed it and it came flying out. Now see, we have to let Scripture renew our minds. Unresolved anger is not a place the Christian can be comfortable with. And again, please look at the why. This is so important. Let me just read this again. This is, this is critical. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity, some translations, foothold to the devil. When we get to Ephesians 6, we're going to see Paul get into what's perhaps the most detailed teaching in the Bible of what we call spiritual warfare. Here we need to see that this text is tied directly to what he's going to say there. Here he's making it clear, 
undealt with anger in this realm of spiritual warfare becomes a fort, a base of operations for the devil. Paul's saying, hey, Christian, willingly staying mad is like saying, yo, devil, you need a fort right in my backyard? No problem. You, you can come on in, and kick my butt up one side and down the other. You want a nice, cozy base of operation right in my living room so you can wage war against me and do some real harm to me and my family and my church. Here you go, free of charge. I won't even charge you rent. That's what Paul says we're doing when we don't deal with anger. And I want to be frank here. That should scare the opposite of heaven out of every single one of us here this morning who are sitting here feeling currently justified in staying angry at your spouse, at one of your kids, kids maybe staying angry at a parent, or at a brother or sister in your church. Just think, again, why this is such a foothold, why this is a base of operation. Go back to what we said earlier about undealt with anger being a, a gateway sin. Let me encourage you, take some time today to think through in your life, maybe in the past, maybe what you're dealing with right now, how anger has led you into further sin. Consider for a moment the sin of being embittered against your brother or sister. Embitterment stems from anger having not been dealt with. And this one's really ugly. This is that sin where you find yourself talking about the other person a lot in your mind. A darkened mind, right? This is, this is talking to them in your mind that leads to arguments with them in your mind, which, by the way, I trust you always win. In fact, th these are those conversations that you probably somehow come out looking like the hero, like, wow, did you see how that guy, he wore him out. Do that long enough, it can't help but flow over into your actions with that person. Maybe just an ugly glance. Maybe you see him coming and you're like, I'm out of here. I'm going the other way. Maybe it even flows over into, we're going to talk about that person a little bit. Just a little bit of gossip. Perhaps all the way over into slander. And we'll dig into those ideas more next week. But for today, can we please, please be crystal clear what this text is saying. And it's saying unchecked anger is a personal invitation to the devil to come on in and do some real damage in your own life, the lives of your family members, and the lives of your church family. And again, Holy Scripture is saying, it's not like that with you, dear Christians. Yes, the air we breathe, everyone's mad at everybody, right? We're always mad as a society. Liberals are mad at conservatives. Conservatives are mad at liberals. Vaxxers are mad at anti-vaxxers, thinking they're shoving the vaccine down their throat. Anti-vaxxers are mad at va or vaxxers are mad at anti-vaxxers because they think they're ruining society because they don't get the vaccine. You know, all these things. And God, through His inspired author, is saying, Christian. We should look different. We should think different. Let Scripture renew your mind. Don't think and act like the world. Unchecked anger is dangerous. And God, through His Word, is saying, put it off. Put 
it off like stinky, nasty old clothes and do it in a timely manner because it's vital for you and for the community where God's called you to do life. Number three, new creations work hard. Number three, new creations work hard. That's verse 28. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, here's another one that's easy to see how it causes harm, right? If you steal from somebody, you are actively doing that person harm. You are taking something that was theirs, calling it your own. So you're actively doing them harm. You're not building up. You're not guarding unity. You're actively tearing it down. So this one's very clear, right? This is one of the Ten Commandments. And, and here, Scripture saying, new creations, put this off. And this would include anything from the very bold, you have something I want, whether it's small or whether it's thousands of dollars or whatever else, you have something I want and I'm going to take it. Anything from that to the more subtle things like, Stealing time from an employer. Your employer does not pay you to get on social media. He doesn't, unless he says that he does. That might be your job, but for a lot of us, it's not. Right? It can be something like stealing an idea from a classmate or a coworker. Stealing can also, according to the scriptures, come from a sense of entitlement where you think because someone around you has so much more than you have, they should just pick up your slack. Even though, if you would have just put in some good, honest work, you might not have had as much as them, but you would have surely had as much as you needed so that you didn't think somebody owed you something. And in fact, interestingly enough, given where Paul goes with this in this text, the last example seems to be very much on point with what he's dealing with. Here, he says that we must put off any form of stealing and instead put on hard work. Again, we're looking at Scripture to renew our minds. The world around us is telling us we should all get all sorts of entitlements, right? There's just this entitlement mentality that we live in. I mean, just the other night, we, we went as a family to go out to eat to celebrate Daniel's 18th birthday, and I pulled into the parking lot of the particular restaurant, and I thought, sweet, we're going to walk right in. There's not many cars here. When, when we walked into the restaurant, the eyeball test still told me we're getting right in. And then the hostess says it's going to be 35 to 45 minutes. I'm like, what's the deal? There's tables and booths everywhere. Well, they could only get two workers. Having a hard time getting people to come to work because there's so many entitlements out there that people are happy to just stay home. Now, it's a little different, but this kind of thing, this kind of thinking is clearly a problem in the first century as well. Flip over with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, probably not everybody's go-to verse or maybe even one that you got memorized, but it's a very important passage. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, starting in verse 6. Here Paul says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness 
and not in accord with the tradition you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we don't have that right, but to give you ourselves as an example to imitate. So this is obviously something that's prevalent in the culture. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. Listen to this. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. And such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, don't grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them that they may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Again, the world around us is all about entitlements and handouts. But Scripture says not so among the new creations in Christ. We are to work hard with our hands. And again, the why here is critical. As a new creation in Christ, living in the new humanity, we want to work hard. This is so countercultural. We want to work hard, not so we personally can just get more and more for ourselves. But look what he says. We want to work hard so we can actually share with those who really are in need. Listen, we all know real needs do come up. And Scripture here is teaching us that we want to work hard, not only so we don't have to steal to stay alive, but so that we can actually be generous. See, as we think about letting Scripture renew our minds so we don't think and live like unbelievers, this is important. Because we know our world says, get it all now. You better hurry. Man, you don't have a long time to go with this. You better get as much as you can right now for yourself. Build your kingdom. Get it. The Word of God says, work hard. Honor Jesus in the work He's given you. Take care of your own family and be generous. Christian, let me ask you, how, how are you doing here? Take some honest inventory. Are you a generous person? Do, do you think about work in such a way that, boy, if I earn this much, I can give away even more? Let me ask you this. If you're a member here, are you giving to this church regularly, systematically, and sacrificially like we commit to, like what's spelled out in our bylaws we've all committed to? If not, may I ask, why not? Scripture seems pretty straightforward on this point, and it's all over the place. Paul's telling us in this text, for example, the way a new creation is to live is generously. Jesus himself tells us where your treasure is, there your heart. By the way, in the Bible, the heart is the control center. The heart includes the mind. There your heart will be also. The world's treasure is their wealth, their stuff, their image that flows from wealth, stuff, and all of that. And so that is where their heart is. That's what they focus on. Our treasure as Christians is to be different. Our treasure is Christ and His bride, the church. 
What's your treasure, brother, brothers and sisters? If it's not today, while you're sitting in the chair, Christ and his church, ask the Lord to help you to keep, off, keep on putting off the old man, putting on the new. Next, and I'm going to have to move quickly here, but not to worry. The same idea comes up later in this section. We'll cover in the coming weeks. Here we see that new creations are builders. New creations are builders. Back to Ephesians 4. Look at verse 29. He says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Don't miss that we're returning to the mouth. It's really no surprise when you understand the Bible's teaching on our words that this is such a big deal when you think about how we live in the church. And James says it well with reference to the tongue, right? He says, the tongue, mouth, is a restless evil full of deadly poison. He says, with it, listen to this dichotomy, with it we bless our Lord and Father and curse people made in His image. He says, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Earlier, Paul referred to our speech in the realm of truthfulness. Here he speaks in terms of our speech rotting or building. The word often translated as like corrupting or unwholesome is literally rotten or putrid. It's used elsewhere for fruit that's rotting Meat, it's becoming rancid, rotted wood. So, so it's painting a picture that should really cause us to step back and think about our words. We should ask, is what's coming out of my mouth building somebody up? Is it building up the church? Or are my words having the effect of termites actively working at the rotting of the infrastructure? This is the putting off and putting on. Our words can have good effects or they can have negative effects. By, by, by what we choose to say, our words can have the effect of building up the body of Christ or our words can have the effect of sort of rotting away at the body. And here Paul's saying, put off that which rots, that which brings down, put on that which is wholesome, that which is good, that which builds up. And I think we need to be reminded that is not to say that we are never to say anything negative. Again, we need our minds renewed here. We live in a culture that says, if you say anything negative to anyone who says they're struggling, if you say anything that does not immediately affirm, <whistles> buddy, that's off limits, right? It, the culture says if you don't affirm everything, if they say they're struggling, well, you're just mean. You're actually perhaps taking a whack at somebody's mental health. But I have to ask you, does that jive with what we see in what we're asking to renew our minds? I mean, for example, Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, and profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. So there's a place where building includes a necessary exhortation, even a rebuke. You see it all over the New Testament. 
And there's also the reality that what culture would call kind words, affirming words, supporting words can actually serve as an agent of rot when we are affirming, supporting, indeed condoning sin. Church, we are to use our words to build. And like the others that we've been looking at, the why is so vital here. It is to give grace to those who hear you. And so, if you are to come to me in my sin and say, you're doing great, Chris. Man, I affirm you in that, even though it's detrimental. I affirm that. You're make, you be you, dude. Got my support. Last time I checked, that is a far cry, a far cry from the Bible's understanding of grace. It is not gracious to encourage anyone in their sin. If we truly believe in a real heaven and a real hell, I think it's actually about the meanest thing we could possibly do. No, see, new creations in Christ, our aim is to use our words to bring people closer to Jesus. Our aim is to speak in such a way that, say, the unbeliever could hear our words and come to know the, the Savior, or, or a brother or sister is, is built up in their faith, whether he or she is struggling in sin and needs to be exhorted, or they're just discouraged and need to be encouraged. This is important. We want to put off words that rot put on words that build. And don't miss that with all of these, the good of the body is at stake. In fact, this last one, I think, really drives this home. Look at verse 30. He says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Here we see that our actions, how we think, how we live, can actually grieve the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity. Here Paul's echoing Isaiah 63.10, where Isaiah describes how God was so gracious to redeem Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus, and that they rebelled against Him shortly thereafter, and he says they grieved the Holy Spirit. The Psalms pick up on this kind of language. In Psalm 78.40, we read how often they rebelled against Him, again speaking of Israel, how often they rebelled against Him in the wilderness and grieved Him in the desert. Their actions grieved God. And see, texts like these are helpful in the realm of thinking about our, our motivations. It's clear from these texts, and certainly Paul's use of language here in Ephesians 4, that our actions can grieve the Spirit of God, the very one, think about this, who has sealed us for the day of redemption. Now, think about it like this. I try to think of a scenario. This, this isn't a great one, but it, maybe it helps us. Imagine a situation where you are a dead man or dead woman walking, right? A lot of different ways you can get there, various cancers or whatever. But, on, but in this situation, you're on a missions trip with your church. You're in India, out in a remote tribe, and you and a couple of others, not even the whole team, go looking for something. And as you do so, you're struck by a cobra. You're dead. You're out in the bush. There is no anti-venom out here. Nobody has any antivenom. You don't have time for anybody to make the trek, the day trek, to go get the antivenom and get back to you. And so as you sort of start feeling your life slipping away, you tell the one or two people that are out there with you, please tell my wife I love her. Please tell my kids I love them. And then out of nowhere, somebody shows up 
right? One of the tribesmen. You would have never thought they had this stuff. They're out in the bush, and he pulls out a vial of antivenom, and he gives it to you, and you slowly feel your life starting to come back. Now, here's the point. You don't get up and spit in that person's face, right? You, you get up thankful. You get up with the desire to honor that person. And that analogy falls short because think how much more here, right? The Holy Spirit is the one who opens our eyes so that we even see sin for what it is. He's the one who regenerates the heart so that we actually understand how Good Friday is Good Friday, right? We understand the cross and our need of it. He's the one who gives us the faith to believe, and He seals us for a glorious inheritance. Think about that. We're heading towards God's wrath. He seals us for a glorious inheritance. And, and let me just say, you might be here this morning, and you've never trusted Christ. And, and maybe the Holy Spirit is wooing you even now. Maybe the Holy Spirit's helping you to see, wait a minute, something's out of line. And, and I, I want what they're talking about. Friend, if that's you, look to Jesus. Look to Christ. Look to the cross. He's my only hope, the only hope of everybody sitting around you, he's your only hope. Trust in Christ today. For believers, let's end on this. Think about the gospel. Think about what we've covered. Why would I want to grieve the one who has done so much for me? Why would I want to grieve the one who has sealed me for eternity with God? I want to honor him. I want to live my life to glorify Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You are at the process of renewing the minds of all who have trusted in Jesus. And Lord, I do pray for any friends here today who have not yet trusted in Christ. Lord, might You be gracious to them even now. Might you cause them to look to Jesus, even as we sing the next couple of songs. Oh, Father, we pray for all of us that you continue to have your way with us for your glory, for our good. Amen.